HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's episode, I welcome chef Jihae Kim, the managing partner of Miss Kim, a Korean restaurant influenced by her ancestors and by Michigan produce. The restaurant is a part of the Zingerman's community of businesses located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, an offshoot of the world-famous Zingerman's Deli, known for its unique forward-thinking business practices that has fostered a collective of businesses that are often conceptualized, run, and then owned and operated by those who joined the Zingerman's family first as entry-level employees. After G.A. graduated from the University of Michigan, she returned to New Jersey where she had spent her teenage years after moving to the U.S. from South Korea. Although she had cultivated a successful career in hospital administration, after returning to Ann Arbor as an adult, she felt she needed a change in her life, and so she switched to working in the hospitality industry in 2008. She took a massive 90% pay cut and began working at Zingerman's Deli. She worked at various Zingerman's businesses and with the Rome Sustainable Project as well. And then she went on to run an Asian street food cart for four years before opening the brick-and-mortar location of Miss Kim in 2016. Jihei was a semi-finalist for the James Beard Award Best Chef Great Lakes Region in 2020. She was admitted and participated in the James Beard Chef Bootcamp for Policy Change and Food Lab Detroit's Fellowship for Change in Food and Labor. On today's episode, we discuss changing careers, the true time it takes to create, develop, and open a food business, and how to make the industry more equitable in the future. Here's the episode. Jihei, good morning. Good 
Good morning. So where are you right now?、Uh, I'm in my、uh, apartment in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Cool, and、uh, of course, you are the chef of a restaurant, and it is currently open during COVID, correct? Yes, it is. We're open for、uh, delivery and takeout. And where is it located? For people that have never been to Michigan,、uh, can you tell a little bit about Ann Arbor? And then for the people that do know Ann Arbor, can you let them know specifically where、uh, the restaurant is? Of course.、Uh, so. Ann Arbor is on the southeast side of、uh, Michigan State.、Uh, it's about an hour away from Detroit, and it's the home of the University of Michigan, the Wolverines. And in Ann Arbor, we're located in Carytown area、um, that is、uh, wedged between the campus and and the main street. And that's where also the hundred-year-old、uh, farmers market happens every Wednesday and Saturday. And so the restaurant was—it was a restaurant before you opened up Miss Kim's, correct? Yeah, it's been a restaurant space for a long while, maybe like even before eighties. I think it—it's always been sort of Frenchy restaurants.、Um, Until、uh, until the most recently, it was an event space by Zingerman's Delicatessen,、uh, and then I took over. And we'll get into a little bit later. But part of the reason that you took over a space that was a Zingerman's business is because you have a close relationship with Zingerman's, and that was actually a a, a spot that you started working at. You started working at the deli when you had a big career change partway through your life and made the transition into becoming a chef. Yes,、uh, I think the close relationship would be an understatement.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,、uh, you know, I had this former life sitting in the desk all the time, and and then I switched to career,、uh, and then went into Zingerman's Delicatessen, and that was the beginning of sort of a beginning of my、uh, food industry career. Not counting on like.、Uh, Working under the table as a server during school. So before we get into the actual career switch up, I want to go back to the beginning, which is in Seoul, South Korea. So that's where you were born. Can you、yep. tell us a little bit about what the you moved to New Jersey when you were thirteen, right? Yeah. So I was、uh, born and raised in Korea, and I had a very、uh, typical upbringing. Nothing. Nothing stands out very much. Other than the fact that, like you know, my mother was the oldest, and my father was the oldest, and we had extended family, so holidays were big. But that's also not very atypical. That's very typical.、Um, and then、um, when I was about thirteen,、uh, our whole family moved to New Jersey.、Uh, why New Jersey? I don't know. <laughs> other than the fact that、uh, my mom's、uh, sister was already、uh, settled there, so I grew up in. New Jersey until I moved to Ann Arbor for school. When you were growing up in Seoul, was there often discussion, maybe not even within your family, but maybe friends or other family members about folks moving to the United States? Was it rare at that time? I know your your aunt was in New Jersey, but was she an outlier, or were most people、um, that you knew? Hoping or making an attempt to move to the United States. Um, I, you know, it's not unheard of, but at least within our family and our circle of、uh, people, it was an outlier. She was the only person who went to New York. Um, 
I think before then, I guess my mother's uh, distant uh, aunt was in uh, in New York. So there was a little bit of connection there, but nobody else was thinking that, oh, we are going to pack up and go to New York. We were quite happy making, uh, making lives uh, in Seoul. Did you study English in school when you lived in South Korea? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if you can call it that, I knew alphabet. I think I had about like three years of English language uh, classes. It's required from seventh grade on, and I think it's actually required even sooner now. Um, mm-hmm. But the English... Uh, classes in Korea at the time very much focused on grammar and not like, you know, speaking or listening. So I can string together complicated sentences that are kind of grammatically correct. But when I got to United States, I couldn't utter the sentence, how are you? It was deformed in my head, but it didn't come out of my mouth. So I would say I was completely not able to speak English when I got here. And so what was that experience like you're a young teenager you've moved to new jersey you aren't well versed in uh in the language and what was your knowledge level like of american culture on the east coast did you feel uh did you feel welcome did you feel very foreign what was the (laughs) overall first sort of thoughts of the united states like oh um well, the experience was terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, let's see. I think my two reference point for American sort of ch- uh, childhood is uh, the Peanuts, the Snoopy and Charlie Brown, you know, they go pumpkin mm-hmm. picking, that kind of stuff. And Wonder Years, because those were like, uh, my mom had me watch Peanuts when I was young. And then Wonder Years was a, a very, very popular TV show in Korea as well. Um, but when I got here, um, it's not so much that American culture was bad. It's more that it was a complete uprooting of everything I knew um, without any kind of guidance. So my parents like brought me and my brother to United States, but it's not like they set us down and go like, oh, you're going to American high school and you're not going to have any support. But, you know, the classes move from one place to another instead of, because in Korea, you stay in homeroom and teachers come. And in America, teachers stay and then kids move around. You know, they don't know. So it's not like they set us up and they certainly didn't tell us the cafeteria food was going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, because um, because uh, uh, in Korea, the homerooms are set for the year and you don't really move around very much, you have an opportunity to get to know people. And as an introvert, that, that was important that um, that I can take time to get to know people. But in the United States, I didn't speak the language. And and then I went to the cafeteria and it was shocking that different classmen were uh, eating together, but it was uh, organized in this like unseen social cliques. So I haven't really seen that before. Yeah, and, and more importantly, like I went from like a 13 year old who was like about to have her own boyfriend and like kind of was popular to like a complete bottom of the social ladder and couldn't even say hi to people. So yeah, it was quite a quite a change. It sounds like it could have resulted in almost a traumatic experience. Did you sort of find your footing quickly or was high school 
sort of miserable. Yeah, I, I think it was traumatic because I think I had more gray hair then than now. <sighs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I found my putting uh, my my uh, footing uh, quite quickly because I was very much focused on getting out of high school. And um, I do better if I'm like focused on one thing. So I was focused on going to college, and and I found I found a few friends, uh, most of them Im- immigrants, whether they are Korean immigrants or uh, Chinese immigrants. So most of my friends were Asian immigrants, and um, we would study hard, and then we would. So uh, we would finish school and then we would drive to New York and then try to get some snacks because that's where I like where I was is New Jersey sub- suburbs where you didn't really have anything. I think maybe you had like one token Chinese American takeout place that wasn't that great. So we would drive to New York and get at the time Soup Nazi and Seinfeld was all the rage. I'm betraying my age here. So we so we would go get the soup from Soup Nazi or get bagels or like go to uh go to Chinatown and um yeah. Um so I had I had some fun. I, I wouldn't say that I didn't have fun, but like most of the high school experience was focused on going to college. And at the same time, I had to also play the adult of the house because even though I didn't really speak English very well, uh, I was also the best uh, English speaker. So I would meet with the real estate agents and and look at apartments for us and make phone calls to like the cable companies. I was doing all of that at like anything that required English speaking fell on my lap. And at that time, your aunt was running a restaurant, correct, in New Jersey? Oh, yeah. So she was running um, sort of like a Japanese sushi, but with some Korean food, uh, casual restaurant at the time. And and I saw this go down and it was very clear to me that she wasn't the chef. And every time a chef was upset or a chef wanted to leave, the restaurant would be in like total jeopardy. And I, yeah, and I saw, I saw immigrants uh, working at restaurants and having a really tough uh, lifestyle. And I, I thought to myself, like, I will never go into a restaurant. And of course, here we are today. Uh, of course. Yeah. Did did you spend time there? Did you work there, either cooking or working front of house at your aunt's restaurant? Oh, um, you know, actually, no. You know, um, when I um, when I talk to people and like they ask me about my background, um, people want to hear like my grandmother was a great cook and my mother was a great cook and I grew up in a restaurant. I slept in a little crate in the corner of the restaurant of my aunt <laughs> and then like, I don't know, trimmed the peas all day. Um, it wasn't like that at all. Um, my mother was very adamant about me not learning to cook. She said that um, I'm going to end up in the kitchen because I had the misfortune of being born a woman. So I didn't have to do it as a child. And I was very much told to focus on the studies. I, I enjoyed spending time at my aunt's restaurant, but I was always at a, like a guest capacity. I wasn't really allowed in the kitchen very much. And she was always worried about like pissing off the chef. So I was, I said hi and then kept polite, but I wasn't allowed in there. I think the passion for food is more that it was always in everyday life. 
um, it wasn't something that we talked very much about, but it was always uh, always there. So we always talk about what we're going to eat. When we travel, we always wonder where we're going to eat when we travel and then what what banchan we're going to make the next day. And um, and a lot of things were taken for granted and wasn't given like big thought. So, for example, my mom and my aunt and my grandmother will like every like October, November have a huge uh, kimchi making party. Um, and my mom would casually go like maybe 50 heads of cabbage, maybe 100 heads of cabbage. This is family of six and two of, two of those six is children under 10. Um, yeah, so she just sort of did it without like thinking much about it. Um, and we had like blocks of fermented tofu, the fermented soybean blocks hanging over the awning at the old style house that we lived in. And my grandmother would ferment uh, like soy, uh, soy sauce or make like gochujang paste, but it wasn't really discussed. It was just like thing you, things you do. It was like as, uh, it, as little thought given to it as like making a grilled cheese sandwich here. So it was always there and was taken for granted. And it's really when I moved away from the house that I started really missing it and realizing that there is like a tremendous amount of value in it. It was just kind of ingrained in your childhood that that was part of it, but it wasn't necessarily a uh, a monumental moment when your family was making kimchi. It was more just we're making something and then we're going to eat it. Yeah, yeah, we're making something and it's only natural that we make it from scratch and it's only natural that we buy like the best ingredients that we can afford. And it's only only natural that she's making 100 heads of cabbage. I mean, I own a restaurant right now and I don't make 100 heads of cabbage at once. Um, yeah, it's only natural she's doing that and it's only natural that she'll have me watch out for the uh, apartment superintendent while she's digging a hole in the ground to bury a pot that she's going to store this hundred heads of cabbage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was just sort of done like it's part of life. And, and, um, and then, you know, e- even when we uh, immigrated to United States and she was working like seven days a week, 12 hours a day, uh, trying to get us going, but then she would come home and then like spend hours like making making uh, homemade food. Like homemade food was not something that she'd let go. So when I when I uh, when I don't have that, then I realized that I missed it a lot and that it was actually not a usual thing. Like I know a lot of uh, I know most uh, Korean immigrants who are here if they have like they have access to. Uh, like store-bought kimchi and and store-bought kimchi is quite good and they go ahead and do that because it's such a production they don't make kimchi from uh, scratch every single time like my mother did and still does and so when you were growing up in new jersey was there already a large vibrant uh korean population that was living there or or did that happen years later oh uh that's an excellent question so when I lived in New Jersey, there were uh, there was a good amount of like Korean Korean population, and there were Korean immigrant popula- population. And I think um, I mean you're 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 in New York, so you may know like Fort Lee Palisades Park area just outside of George Washington Bridge. Yeah. Uh, 
is pretty heavily Korean and Korean American population. When I landed there, though, there were not as many uh, storefronts and restaurants. But if you go there now, it sort of almost resembles Flushing, but slightly cleaned up in a sense that like you can get uh, you can get like a uh, noodle specialty restaurants and it's not just like noodles only it, all the noodles. It's like one type of restaurant. So you can get like cold noodles. You can get Chinese, uh, Chinese Korean noodles. You can get like a uh, knife cut noodles. And um, it, I saw, I sort of saw that growing out of like maybe one restaurant they had on one main street. So even moving from New Jersey to Michigan was uh, quite different. Yeah, that was part of the reason that I asked is because, you know, as people have become much more interested in traveling for various specific types of cuisine, and we've seen, you know, the rise of Yelp and Instagram, and people are kind of chasing a specific dish, you're seeing more and more people go from Manhattan to Fort Lee, which is an interesting direction for people to drive for food. Uh, (laughs) Because for the most part, everyone's thought process is, well, where do I go to get the most diverse, interesting food that I could ever have? Well, it's got to be in Manhattan. Well, of course, there's Flushing, which is which has been a, uh, a destination for food for locals and tourists for a long time, but now there's Fort Lee. So um, it is interesting to see how the metropolitan area has grown and how you said when you grew up there, there wasn't as much being offered. Uh, and now you see that it is, in fact, a, a pretty serious food destination. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there was not a lot in Fort Lee area. And I think in Manhattan, there was like a 32nd Street. But at the time, uh, in terms of Korean food, I think, you know, we, we did have to go all the way to Flushing to get some more diversity in Korean food. But now the uh, Fort Lee area and Palisades Park area is really huge. And and uh, 32nd Street is still there. And then, you know, my brother, who's also very much into food, he would drive to, uh, where's the Russian area? Uh, Brighton, Brighton Beach. Beach. Yeah. So sh- he would drive to Brighton Beach to eat um, like a sort of a Russian Korean food. Where, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Stalin <laughs> exiled Korean immigrants in Russia, Korean Russians to uh, Central Asia, and then they get settled there, and then they still want to make kimchi because it's like in our blood, and they don't have the ingredients, so they develop their own like little immigrant cuisine there, and it's similar but different, and it's quite interesting. So then, then I even have an option to go check that out, and it's difficult to find that kind of diversity even in Korea. Like it's difficult to find like Russian Korean food, but in 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 the metropolitan area of New York City, you can just drive to Brighton Beach. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing what can be offered in a 20, 30 mile radius from, from New York City. Uh, I am curious about how you ended up in Ann Arbor. I presume that it is because uh, you applied to some colleges and U of M was an amazing opportunity, but can you take us through the process of how you ended up uh, leaving New Jersey and ending up in Ann Arbor? Sure. <clears throat> so I did mention that I didn't have a lot of guidance in terms of um, high school experience and going to college and navigating American life. So when it time to uh, look at 
colleges, um, I basically had like a thick book you sort through. I think it was from U.S. News. Um, and University of Michigan popped up because at the time, my parents were probably not to the extent that a lot of other Korean American parents were, but they were still sort of pressuring me to do uh, go into more stable career like uh, lawyer or doctor. So I had that in mind, but I sort of knew I didn't want to do that. Um, so I was looking for a university that had well-rounded programs and and. And University of Michigan popped up because it has great engineering school, it has great LSNA, and it has great liberal arts, it, it has great uh, business school as well as medical school. So I thought, I don't know exactly what I want to do. So if I go into one major and I wanted to switch to a different major, I would still be in a good school for that major. I did not consider like what the town would be like or what, what the culture would be like at all. Perhaps maybe I should have, because when I ended up in Ann Arbor, I felt <laughs> the first time I felt like um, I was totally stuck in like a, a countryside, even though it wasn't countryside. And even though I was not from New York City, I was from the suburbs of New York City. Um, I think at the time there was maybe like two to three Korean restaurants. And to to me, that's used to like everything homemade, I can tell when it's not homemade. So while it was good enough food, it was not like my mother's food. So I missed it quite a bit. And uh, yeah, that's how I ended up the first time in Ann Arbor. And then I couldn't get, I could not wait to get out of Ann Arbor when I was done with school. So I immediately left Ann Arbor as soon as I graduated and then got a job back in New Jersey. Um, but, you know, these things happen where I met a boy when I was there and um, and then that brought me back to Ann Arbor the second time. Um, he was uh, at the time uh, a professor at University of Michigan, not my professor. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, not my professor, <laughs> but he was a professor at University of Michigan. And then we did the long distancing thing for a little bit, a few years and then when we finally got married, I moved back to Ann Arbor the second time. But when you left Ann Arbor to go to back to New Jersey and you, you'd graduated, you'd made a career choice. What were you doing? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to tell the context of, of that uh, time. And I graduated six months or so after 9-11. Um, so at the time, I think... Um, I was something called um, out of status. So I'm not quite illegal alien, but the only thing I was allowed to be in in the United States was a student. And my student visa was a little wonky for complicated, convoluted immigration law reasons. So I was allowed to stay in uh, America because my father was a green card holder, but I was too old to be uh, getting a green card with him fast. So... I had to find a job that would sponsor me for my green card fast, which made it like 9-11 made it very, very difficult. Uh, but I did find it. And so it's more that I chose the job based on the need rather than an actual choice of what I want to do with my life. And that was hospital administration and accounting. 
So, you know, if you go to the hospital, you talk to somebody who's going to explain to you insurance company stuff and then take care of you. Uh, I was in charge of that department. And I did that for about three years before I moved on to become a consultant. And then I was a consultant for that industry for about two years before I moved back to Ann Arbor. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. Welcome back to the show here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's episode of The Line, I'm speaking with Jihei Kim, chef, owner, and managing partner of Miss Kim, located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. As someone who also was in a different career and then got into food, I personally believe that it prepared me for certain aspects of running a business and being in a kitchen. What is your opinion on having a job uh, that was at a desk in an office and then making the jump. Do you feel like there are any pieces of that that you use still today as a business owner? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, The job was an interesting one because um, while I didn't like the field, I felt that I learned a lot. My boss gave me a lot of of, uh, space and, uh, yeah, my boss empowered me to make a lot of decisions on my own. So, and it was a, uh, it was a company that had just started. So I sort of saw the company in a startup stage in a similar way that any small business would be in a startup stage, uh, including a restaurant. So I was working restaurant hours, so to speak, because I'd be there at nine o'clock and then I would work until like 9 PM or later for the first, uh, first, at least six months. And then it is sort of like dwindled down to semi-normal hours. Um, and, um, and I got to set a lot of different systems from scratch because the, the company was in year one. So I was involved in hiring and training and firing and disciplinary actions. I was involved in like how to deal with the vendors, how to deal with the clients and how to uh, create an office and positions and job descriptions, how to buy software. So so I, I felt that I got a very varied experience that's relevant even today because, you know, if you're in a restaurant, you have to have your hands in every little thing. It's not like you are in the kitchen and just doing that. So I thought that was important. But I think more important takeaway is that like being growing up in a red restaurant industry, I saw a lot of cases where people who grew up in restaurant industry can sometimes be a little more myopic in a sense that um, they have a hard time seeing outside of that industry. So um, when I 
so one example would be that, you know, when I joined Zingerman's, Zingerman's um, one of the things that are discussed to what explain to the staff is that benefits are offered. And, and I think it's less rare now, but it was more rare, like, 10, 15 years ago that a restaurant group would offer full benefits like medical, dental, vision, 401k and all of that stuff. So I saw at the time my coworkers were like, ooh, ah. And sometimes you even see it in the media uh, uh, that um, that it's, it gets read, written up and mentioned. But if you are not in restaurant industry, you kind of go like, well, that's the basic that you should get offered as an employee to have a half decent life in America because that's the, at the least at the time, the only way to get any kind of health insurance. So kind of seeing outside of the restaurants industry, I think was really helpful. And lastly, I saw, I saw what training really can do because this company in particular didn't hire people with a lot of experience. So we would hire people with not a lot of experience, and then we train them from scratch, much like I do every day with the cooks and the servers. Um, and then I got to really see that my boss was a scary woman, and she used the negative reinforcement a lot. And I saw how it, effective it can be for a very short period of time, and then in the long run, it doesn't quite work. And and so that like kind of seeing that, how that plays out, and and then understanding that maybe negative reinforcement is now where you want to be um, as, as I'm managing people. Yeah. I, I think that I, I think of the two jobs and two industries and I, the similarities, it's very stri- striking. There was so much there that you just said that I think was valuable for listeners to unpack about how uh, all your life experiences, sometimes completely outside of the hospitality industry can be really applicable. And uh, I think that you are to build on what you said. You know, the job of owning a restaurant is not, and being a chef is not exclusively or really almost at all about putting food on a plate and making it look good. That's really only one facet of a day of a hundred tasks and a hundred opportunities to unfortunately make a mistake and, and do something that can be detrimental to your business. So, um, as you transitioned from your first professional career to your second professional career, did you think that you were joining Zingerman's with the ability to bring some of your corporate expertise and apply that to <laughs> Zingerman's? Or were you like, I need to do something completely different and uh, I want to sell cheese at Zingerman's Deli? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, I, I like to... I like to make myself sound better than it is now, but it is it, what it actually was. Is but it's more that like I actually did not have a very solid plan or vision. I I knew I didn't. I did not want to be in the industry that I was in then. And I mean, I can go into details what why, but I like one thing I will say is that yeah, please. I knew that I was. I knew I liked working, <laughs> and. And I knew that I was going to spend a lot of time working because I liked it. Uh, anything below like 60 hours was um, uh, seemed too chill, even at the time when I was doing the office work. Um, 
And and I, I knew that if I was going to spend that much time with group of people in an industry, then I wanted it to be a good group of people and a good industry. And at the time, I did not feel that insurance industry and hospital administration was not where I wanted to spend majority of my life. Um, and, and, um, and I did not carefully choose food industry per se. I was basically like, okay, I want to do things differently. And I want to, I want to do something that gives me joy and food gives me joy. And I came to this conclusion partially because of like missing my mother's home cooked meal and what it actually meant, even though she never played that up, but also that, uh, you know, the, the boy that I met and then eventually became the man that I married, we're now divorced amicably, but um, he is an architect. Uh, and uh, when I went to his uh, parties at his house, I was really bored. <laughs> I didn't have a, a lot of interest in architecture at the time. And uh, and almost all, all, all the friends are in academia. So they're sort of talking shop. And it's not my shop, so I'm, I'm I was a little bored. But then I I noticed that architects parties always had good cheese, and great food. And then I was <laughs> able to entertain myself <laughs> by just like paying attention to food. And then it sort of caught my attention that was slowly like food was slowly coming more from the background to for, forefront at the time, and really understanding the importance and the joy of food in my life. And I. I, you know, I was a consultant. I was on a year contract. I, I told them I will not be renewing the contract like six months before it was due. And then I told everybody there that I am going to leave the industry and I am going to cut cheese for a living. There is this great deli. I went there like twice and I loved it. And I read about them on the internet and, and I have a gut feeling that I'm just going to work there. That was pretty much about the amount of thought that went into it. And then uh, once I made that decision, I, I thought to myself, okay, um, what do I want to do instead of what do I have to do? Because from the time that I landed in America until that moment, it was very much like most of my decisions are driven by what do I have to do? I have to go to college to get a degree, to get a job that's going to sponsor me green card, that line of thinking. But then I was like, oh, I don't have to be so kind of like on the alert in life as much anymore. What, like, so let me ask, my parents never really did ask me what I wanted to do with my life. So let me ask what I wanted to do with my life. And I sort of knew that I wanted to have my own little thing and I didn't want to be in corporate. And I sort of knew that I wanted to be working with good people and I wanted to uh, be in an industry that was more immediate and, and tactile and gave me joy, but it was still vague. So I was like, at the time, I think I was 27. And I was like, 27 is really young. I'm going to give myself like until 30 to, can I curse in this show? No, right? Okay. Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, at the time I was like, okay, I'm 27. I'm going to give myself until 30 to fuck around and find out what I want. That's how I ended up in the food industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to work with good people and I wanted to fuck around um, and to find out what I, what it is, what is it that, that gave me joy. So when I, when I did end up at, um, uh, Zingerman's delicatessen taking like literal 90% pay cut. Um, 
I did notice that this uh, particular company was different. I mean, I I didn't have a lot of food industry experience, but I did waitress uh, at different restaurants when I was going to school to make some money. And I I did have my aunt who had her own restaurant. But when I went to Zingerman's, um, I did notice that there was a a different vibe. Um, I mean, you cannot go in there as much. And then the vibe is a little chiller now now that we're in the we're in the middle of the pandemic and there is like a capacity limit but before pandemic you go into Zingerman's delicatessen is packed and everybody is like high energy and they're saying hi to you and then they're just like constantly feeding you samples of cheese I mean they won me over right there (laughs) and then um yeah and so like this uh this idea of spending majority of you don't spend that much time with your family you spend more time with your coworkers. And to be with a bunch of people who were kind of that positive and and energetic uh, appealed to me at the time. And then when I started working there, I also noticed this uh, studio seriousness in the staff and like they wanted to know how the, what kind of milk and the grass the cow ate for the cheese. And they like, uh, cheese makers were like rock stars when they came to visit, (laughs) visit the deli. And we would have an an hour paid meeting, just tasting and just talking about tasting notes and going down to like, this is a spring cheese. This is a, 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 like a fall cheese and how that tastes differently. And that was really great because it was like being in school. And at the same time, the company talks a lot about, you know, providing better, better providing for the staff. So besides on top of the benefits, which I sort of brushed it off as what all the other industry is doing and what we're supposed to be doing um, without at the time knowing how how difficult restaurant industry can be and how difficult independent restaurants have it financially to be able to do that. Um, But more that they were talking a lot about like empowering the staff and uh, management tactics and visioning and all of this stuff. And I I am sort of a skeptical person to begin with. And I think I was more cynical then than I am now. So so when I first got in and saw that, I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let me see if this is actually, if they actually mean it. And I'm going to watch it to see if it's uh, if it's actually effective. So I spent about first year and a half carefully watching Singerman's, <laughs> Singerman's and see how this plays out without, like, so to speak, drink the Kool-Aid. It's a great place to study from the inside and the outside. And of course you said drink the Kool-Aid because people do describe Zingerman's as having a, a you know, a, a, a cult, cult a little bit like sometimes. Attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The, yeah. I, the wild thing about Zingerman's is that it's a multi, multi-million dollar business and it's incredibly complex and there are a lot of moving pieces, but I think at its core, it's simply about, can we source and then sell the best ingredients and can we make sure that the employees the people that work here are happy and if they're happy they're going to do a good job of selling the great products that we buy and so it's it's so big and so vast but at the smallest interaction that you have which is when you walk into the deli and someone greets you to sell you a piece of bread or a piece of cheese they are actually 
knowledgeable and actually incredibly enthusiastic to be there. And that creates this customer experience, which is very rare, but also in the Midwest, very, very rare. So it has, uh, it's an experience, but it also delivers the product once you order it. So after you'd spent some time being skeptical and you'd been there for a while, did you fully buy in to the to the Zingerman's uh, the Zingerman's concept of uh, <laughs> of what it means to be part of that of that? It truly is a family, you know. Did you did you become part of the Zingerman's family in your mind, or were you still kind of cynically studying it a bit from the outside? <laughs> uh- you know, I, I am bought in. Otherwise, I would not be part of Zingerman's community as a partner. Um, but I don't think I completely, like, became a family in a sense that, like, it's more of a team atmosphere in my mind because you cannot really leave your family. You're kind of tied together in a way. But team, we got, we're kind of playing together for a common goal. And I eventually dropped my uh, sort of skepticism. But but I think um, in, I, I sort of dropped the skepticism in a sense that I was questioning everything and kind of looking at it with um, sort of negative critical eye, so to speak. But I still retain a uh, little bit of uh, skepticism in what we do. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, part of the, part of, part of being, uh, a, a, a part of being uh, in Zingerman's community of businesses, and you mentioned that it's fast and it's true. Um, we like to joke that we make everything complicated, <laughs> but, but part of it is that like people bring different perspective. And, and I think, um, I think it's a good thing if I bring a healthy skepticism to, to the group, it's not always a healthy organization. If everybody had drink the Kool-Aid and everybody's hundred percent on the same page and to Zingerman's credit, they're very open to hearing diverse voice and, and taking it seriously and considering a, uh, like a outlier opinion. So it has been, um, a welcoming experience once I dropped the negativity. <laughs> the transition for you has not, it wasn't like you worked at Zingerman's and then you worked at the deli and then all of a sudden you opened up a restaurant. There was a whole in between where you were sort of developing your concept and then the concept existed as a cart. And then there's this area of Ann Arbor where there were carts all together. Um, can you speak a little bit about that time when you were uh, you you were creating all the the branding and ideating what the menu would look like and how it transitioned over time from an idea to actually executing it um, and selling food to customers? Yeah, um, so Zingerman's have this thing called path to partnership. So it's a step by step. You know the the. You know the board game life. It's it's kind of like that, where <laughs> you put where, another uh, person in the car every step of the way. You put another you could business belt yeah, every, then, every step of the way. And you may take a step back if you draw a wrong card. Um, yeah, it's, so it's sort of like that. So it's not like you know you have an idea, you apply, and you get accepted, and then now you're a business. 
um, in the big scheme, it's like that, but there's so many steps they ask you to do. So they ask you to immerse yourself in Zingerman's because we are sort of a atypical organization. And then, and then uh, they, you, you try managing people for a year. You go to the leadership uh, seminar that we offer to the managers here. Um, so I did that. And, and one of the fascinating thing about that process is that there's no time assigned to each step. So you can make it as long or as, as short as possible. And I chose the long path um, because, because of the experience of seeing my aunt running a restaurant without knowing how to be a professional chef and how that impacted the business itself. Because if she got a different chef, then food tasted differently. And the atmosphere in the kitchen and the sushi bar was different. And I, I did not want to do that. And I, I knew very much where my shortcomings were. Like I may have known how to run a, a small business from previous experiences, but I am certainly, I was not a, a classically trained chef or not classically trained chef at all. So I took a long path of, I did work at the Zingerman's Delicatessen. I did work at the Roadhouse. But then I, I did open um, a little food cart um, at a place called Mark's Carts. At the time, I think we were like food trucks were all the rage and it had finally reached Ann Arbor. Like things usually happen in the coast. And then by the time it reaches Ann Arbor, it's like two years later, like cupcake craze. <laughs> but um, um, so it had finally reached Ann Arbor and Mark Hodesh of downtown Home and Garden had an empty lot close to the main street. And he decided that he wanted to have a vibrant community of entrepreneurs that he wanted to have, have this space to be their platform. So, so then he opened Mark's cart and I was there the, from the first year to about four years, first four years. And it was a community kitchen and a community food cart. So I got to meet, um, I got to meet like up and comers in Ann Arbor who wanted to do the same thing, which was great. And we we're sort of figuring everything out together. Um, and Michigan weather can be ferocious. So the cart will be open from April Fool's Day to Halloween. And during the winter, it gave me an opportunity to work at different restaurants to gain experience. I was, um, I planned this out um, pretty strategically because I thought, when I was running the cart, we did the inventory. All, all the recipes were written down in grams because it's easier to replicate and it's more accurate to do weights. And that's partially because I wasn't used to English system. So I couldn't understand regular ounces to fluid ounces and what the difference was. So I was like, everything's going to be in weight in gram. Um, and then it allowed me to develop recipes. It allowed me to train staff. It allowed me to be in the front, allowed me to be in the back. And, and it allowed me to develop a relationship with the health department. So I was sort of doing what any uh, restaurant entrepreneur will do, but with a little, like with a safety net and backing from Zingerman's delicate uh, Zingerman's. And then during the off season, 
I would go into restaurants and I would choose restaurants carefully and what I wanted to get out of it. So I, you know, a couple of seasons I worked at Zingerman's Roadhouse because I, I knew very much that home, home cooking is different than sandwich cooking is different than food cart cooking is different than the catering cooking is different than the restaurant cooking. And I haven't really seen a full service sit down more, more traditionally set up restaurant before from the inside. So I did that. Uh, f- uh, f- from Roadhouse. And then after that, I, I worked at a, I, I staged a couple different Korean American restaurants. Um, I think about 10 years ago, I started seeing Korean American restaurants that came out that was doing something slightly differently. So before then, I would see Korean restaurants catering to Korean immigrants and they do what they do. And then if 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 uh, non-Korean people wanted to come and eat, then that's fine. Um, but they weren't really trying to accommodate in, in, in any way. So the server wouldn't be able to speak English and and able to explain the food for example or that or you would see this other restaurant that are like barely recognizable as korean restaurant because it had it's like asian fusion so it's actually american french food but then they throw in some gochujang and then call it (laughs) asian Mm -hmm. fusion or Mm -hmm. korean Um, but i started seeing these restaurants that are doing like honest to god what looked like uh, an iteration of korean food that i can recognize to me, but also acknowledging like American part of the Korean American heritage and and really focused on getting great ingredients um, and sort of doing doing it at a higher level, but not not bastardizing it. So I would pick out restaurants like that and see if I can go stage at them. Um, I, so I think um, I went to New York because East Coast is where my family is and I'm familiar with. So I went and stashed at Hanjan for a while, which was really great to see. Um, I was watching, I specifically wanted to see how they're sourcing their Korean ingredients because that was a, that was uh, something that worried me in the middle of Michigan. So I, I saw how they were using their ingredients and what they sourced locally and what they sourced internationally and how they made their choice and, and who they had at, as their cooks and what their experience was and what the training looked like. And then I also worked at Suja in uh, Madison, Wisconsin uh, by chef uh, Tony Miller. And I wanted to see how the kitchen was set up and how the tools were different tools were being used. Because if you're doing Korean food, then you may, you, like the tools that you use with Korean food can be different than regular American kitchen. But then if you're setting up a restaurant in, in America, then you may not have those tools. So I wanted to know how Chef Tori Miller set up his kitchen so that he can utilize existing tools to create a fairly traditional Korean food. So I did that can for a while. actually on, on what one of those setup differences might be? Is, yeah. that, is, it, is it a heat source difference? Is it a, a, a utensil difference? What, what might those be? Well, utensil different difference for for uh, for sure. Um, but you know, let's take Korean fried chicken. So Korean fried chicken, you know, everybody does Korean fried chicken. Nobody knows exactly what that is, other than the fact that the crust is very crusty and not as heavy as, say, like a buttermilk southern fried chicken. Um, so uh, in in that kitchen, he had a pressure fryer. So the the 
the chicken is cooked super fast and to order, and and it will come out like super crispy. And and then in another kitchen, chicken was sous vide and then and then fried so that the pickup time shorter, but then the batter wasn't exactly as crispy as I I would like to see in a Korean fried chicken. So in my kitchen, we uh, we uh, po- oil poach the chicken so it's tender and moist but fully cooked. And then we chose batter carefully. So we we choose a gluten-free batter with alcohol in it, uh, not because I was trying to make a gluten-free gluten-free fried chicken, but rice flour and and uh, uh, cornstarch makes a lighter, crispier batter. So that allows me not to double fry. So then I'm not exactly replicating what I saw in different kitchens, but each kitchen gives me an idea of what I need to achieve. Then I can come up with the solution that works for my space. Mm-hmm. Another thing was uh, Suja had a huge wok station and and uh, it was really beautiful wok station and the firepower was really great. But then I saw that cooks, cooks were struggling to work with the firepower because it was moving hotter and faster than they can, they can move. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, there was a Mexican-American cook cooking there. So not necessarily very, very trained uh, Chinese cook who's used to woks. And, and I noticed that the cook was lowering the temperature a lot which sort of undoes what the wok is supposed to do if you're constantly mm-hmm. just lowering the temperature. Um, so when I saw that, I decided that I, I don't think I need a wok for Korean food. Wok is not necessarily very Korean anyway. And, and, I, and I decided that I wasn't going to, like the space that I have right now did not have the capacity to do a lot of noodles because the noodles need like a, like a hot water bath and and sauteed noodles are really better with the woks. So I knew what space I was going into and I knew that those tools were not going to go in there. So then I had to think, how how can I create wok-like sear without having a wok? So then all of our pens are sort of like the, uh, uh, you know, the French steel pens that conducts the heat really fast and high heat and comes to a smoking point, but not necessarily a wok. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the minute details of fun kitchen life. <laughs> but fa- but fascinating to see what the differentials are between not only different types of cuisines and different types of kitchens, but even restaurants that do close to the same types of cuisine. You always have to work partly with what you have and partly what you have access to, and then also what you can afford to install. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's always cooking with multi layers of constraints. So when you did decide to go brick and mortar and you went from the cart to the physical location zingerman's had a event space in Carytown, which uh which is a beautiful space and was that sort of a discussion about purchasing a new space together or they had presented that space to you how did that come about and then what year did you open miss kim and what was the what was the first couple months like when you opened? <laughs> um, so up until the point of finding, like getting the space, I was under um, the entrepreneurial program where um, 
I'm more like an employee, right? So I run everything, but all the finances go through Zingerman's. They, uh, they paid for the food cart, for example. Uh, but once we are ready to go for a brick and mortar restaurant, then we, I finished my path to partnership. I get accepted as partner. And then we talk about finances, which I thought was quite interesting because we put a lot of uh, emphasis on the shared values. And then the conversation about finances came a little later. I mean, people who may be familiar with Zingerman's is, uh, um, they may know that we're a triple bottom line company. So our bottom line is not just making money, but we also care about food service and finance service, including internal, how, how we take care of our staff. But I noticed that the finances sometimes, um, especially in the pet to partnership thing, um, it wasn't like permeating through the process. It was sort of like came after when we were ready to draw up the paper. Um, but having said that, we're like 50-50 partners and and it sort of doesn't matter if I had 20% and Zingerman's had 80% or I had 80% and Zingerman's had 20%. Uh, we have an equal say regardless of the partnership financial structure. And, and then there's the complication of like, my official title is managing partner and my partner Paul and Ari are investing partner. So that means they're more advisory um, role every day and I'm more managing every single aspect of the business. So I, I thought about this, you know, I already mentioned that I have a, a skeptical side to me. So I thought about this a lot because I thought that if I wanted to run my own restaurant just by myself, it may not look exactly like how it looks now, but I can do it. I do not need investors. I can make it smaller. I can make it different. Um, but with Zingerman's, um, it's, it's that like there's enormous amount of support and knowledge that I can tap into. And, and at the same time, there's autonomy on every day. So if I were to buy a software or hire someone or, or create a new dish um, or suddenly go into catering, um, I decide, I make the decision with the staff's input and, and the other partner's input, I share the information, but at the end of the day, I have the autonomy to make every single decision big and small. And I thought that was really the best of both worlds. And I've mentioned that I didn't have a lot of guidance once I came to United States um, as, a, as a teenager. And it mattered to me that I would work with good people who can offer some sort of guidance for somebody who's never been in the restaurant industry. I've seen too many people who are like wonderful home cooks who go like, I'm gonna open a restaurant and then, and then realize that opening a restaurant and opening your home for dinner for four is completely different. And then they crash and burn. And I totally. was determined, yeah, I was determined not to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not the same thing in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, public uh, service announcement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and so now you've had the ability to reflect for several years, or we can reflect right now if you haven't done it in, up until now, on being open for several years. What would you say you've done well so far? And what things are you still working out? and trying to do a lot better job at? 
Oh, you know, um, I think it bears to mention that we opened um, in November of the election year when Donald Trump became a president. <laughs> and, then, and then here we are again, four years later. Um, and when I reflect on it, like a couple things really uh, come into my mind. One is that we are, even with Zingerman's support and even with Zingerman's being uh, fairly on a bigger side for independent restaurants, we're still small. And, and that comes with good and bad. So the good is that Miskim especially uh, is constantly evolving in terms of food and how we do things. And, and it also allows us to be nimble. So up until the pandemic, we evolved. Um, so I think of like first few months compared to the last few months leading up to the March shutdown. We are a different restaurant in my mind because the food is much better. The team is gelling better. The service is better. And, and, and we were able to create a culture where when you first open a restaurant, you don't really have a culture to base upon, even with support of an existing restaurant group. Um, so being able to evolve and independently and, and stay nimble helped us um, adjust to all the challenges that the pandemic brought to the restaurant industry and to everybody else. So I think that's a good thing. Um, it also allowed us to do things like out of box a little bit. So Miss Kim opened as uh, one fair wage restaurant. And I, I think at the time, no tip. So we paid everybody living wage for Washtenaw County and we refused to accept tips for first three years or so. And then we got, this is the weirdest thing. We got enough complaints from our customers wanting to leave more money that we allowed people to leave the tips, but we did not change the pay structure of the staff, uh, which you gotta uh, love Ann Arbor. I have my feeling. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's gotta love Ann Arbor and also gotta love like people wanting to hold on to how things are. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I have a lot of feelings about tipping and, and it's history and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, that's just my feelings. And the fact that we started accepting tips allowed us allowed the, allowed the staff to make, you know, four dollars more an hour. That's a that's a, a significant impact. Totally, it's that, very substantial. Yeah, it's substantial positive impact. It's it's as big, if not bigger, impact than understanding how to write a vision for yourself. Um, it has an everyday impact in like a more immediate way. Um, and then, um, and then the challenge is that um, it's because we're small and restaurant industry margins so so tight that that's very difficult to execute on your own. And when the pandemic hit, um, yeah, we had to pivot to takeout only, which was an easy pivot for us because we didn't have to change anybody's pay structure. So there is no server who's dealing with takeout who's making $3 an hour. Mm -hmm. And we were able to share tips across the board for hourly staff who contribute to the guest experience and have, we've already had a, a better team uh, atmosphere because it's sort of hard to be a good team when somebody, a server makes like $20 an hour and cook makes $10 an hour. Yeah. 
yeah, but everybody's sort of uh, making the same amount of money. So that makes it, it's more conducive to teamwork. Totally. It makes everybody feel like they are working towards a singular common good of the restaurant staying open yeah. and being successful and, and keeping your employment, hopefully, during this this really rocky time. Did yeah. you... Did you try to or or did you successfully adapt menu items to reflect what either you thought or what the community was asking for in the sense that Ann Arbor is a is a college town and while 100,000 people live there year round when school isn't in session you can sort of feel the the lack of weight of the people that are in town so um with all this uh uncertainty surrounding uh, people having to go back to work, did you see a lack of students, professors, auxiliary personnel in Ann Arbor contributing to to changes that you needed to make at the restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I, well, yes and no. Yes, we immediately felt the impact of the town being a lot emptier than before um, because the March shutdown happened and the school wrapped up fairly fast and then and then it was summer and and summer we don't really see students that much anyway and we've never really been heavily student restaurant we have we have students and uh, grad students and sorority girls coming in as guests but we've always relied on young families and townies and they're still there and 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 it was very touching a lot of our regulars are very loyal um but but we never really catered our menu to think like, oh, well, this crowd will like this better and that crowd will like that better. First thing was, that does it taste good to us first before it goes to the menu? Having said that, we did adjust the menu. We, first of all, lower the price a little bit um, because fried chicken at $27, $28 an hour when it's a takeout and not like a full service with the service included model seemed too much. And, and it didn't really quite make sense in terms of like the value that we're giving to our guests. Um, and we pared down the menu into a smaller menu, some by necessity and some not. Um, the necessity part was the supply chain was weird and we couldn't get, we definitely couldn't get red meat in a consistent way. So we had to change some of that around. Um, and, uh, and another thing is that we, we try to make it more of a comfort food and favorite as a way of, that's what sort of sold well in the middle of pandemic. And it's, it's also what took out better um, in, so some food that is better when you eat it right away in the dining room, some food will have a better time being traveled. And so we, we chose the menu items that's going to travel better. And, uh, lastly, we just needed to pare down our inventory. We couldn't have like so many items on the menu that we only sell like significantly less volume of. That's not good for inventory managing, but it's also not good for the quality of the food if it sits there longer. And we don't really keep things more than a couple days at a time because we make things in smaller batches. So yeah, out of out of many needs that this pandemic put upon us, the menu had to pare down. So now before it was... I think the menu right now is like less than half of what we used to have. 
and more smaller, more interesting dishes, I think, um, took a backseat a little bit. So before the menu was more like uh, 60% seasonal uh, new items that rotates and 40% comfort food that's uh, regular, that's always on the menu staples. But now it's more like 60 to 70% staples and then 30% seasonal specials. So yeah, that's a little bummer, but but I think um, we'll, we're making it happen and we're providing for the staff and we're surviving. And I think that's the priority right now. I want to ask you one final question, which is about your your outlook on the business uh, moving forward. It's we're about twenty days until the election. We are eight months into a global pandemic, and we're not really sure what the future might bring. So, what is what's your personal thoughts and mentality, and uh, and what guides you? Uh, moving forward over the next couple months as a business owner? Yeah. I mean, I I did have a little bit of a grieving period and I still am having grieving period a little bit because every week you you hear news that like another uh, small independent restaurant that's a gem that's closing the doors. And and some of them are the ones that was on my uh, list to visit. And some of them are the ones that my friends own. so it's a little sad, but at the same time, I feel incredibly optimistic and maybe even a touch excited for a huge amount of opportunity for change in our industry. Um, I think this is a sort of a, I mean, we, I've already mentioned how people's uh, desire to hold on to how things are is great. But everything's changing so fast that if you wanted to make a change in your business or in your industry, I think the timing is now. Like now is the time that we start really look at how this food industry treats their workers and how it's not, it hasn't been the best. <laughs> and, and like, I'll give you an example. Um, I heard a lot of complaints, uh, not directly from people that I'm friends with, but I've heard restaurant owners complain that the unemployment benefits are too big and they cannot hire people because people would rather be on unemployment than being paid. And I sort of wanted to go like, then pay them more than the unemployment. Like you're asking them to take less money doing work in unsafe environment, that's not sustainable. And I think what the pandemic did was that it was unsustainable before, but it, it, highlighted how unsustainable it is and it is really showing in result if you're having difficult time hiring um and you know we we struggle financially a lot at miss kim uh for having higher labor costs but we decided that that's not why we're struggling at the end of the day and we just need to have higher higher sales for example but one thing we didn't struggle with to the extent that other people are, was staffing and hiring because we were already paying more than unemployment. So most most of our staff, unless it's for health issues, they stayed and they stayed through since March. And it's only about two weeks ago that we had the need to hire new people. And I think that's, that's an amazing uh, result of treating people right and paying our staff like their seasoned professional career professionals that they are 
you don't see that maybe on good times, but it's it's illustrating itself right now in the pandemic times. And maybe we can take this opportunity to do better for for the restaurant industry and the people who are in it. And I think another thing is that this is also exciting time. It can be exciting time culinarily because we talked about like making some of the sauces available and having meal kits for people, but we never had time to do it when we were running regular services. But now we're, we're able to do that and uh, we can do exciting guest chef stuff in a different capacity. So like uh, Max is doing a little uh, Sharma pop-up at our restaurant one day a week. And I think that's incredibly fun and exciting. And it, it's going to get our uh, guests more engaged. And then uh, we, I've done a cooking class over Zoom, which was different, but also fun in a, uh, in a new way that we haven't explored before. And I think uh, all of that is an opportunity and it's just up to us whether we rise to that occasion or not. Chef Kim, thank you so much for uh, joining me today and sharing so much insight and wisdom from your career and from your restaurant and, uh, and telling us your story. Thanks for having me and um, hearing me. Thank you. For everyone that's listening, can you tell them where the restaurant is located, what are your hours these days, and if there's a website and Instagram that they can follow as well. Yeah. Um, Miss Kim Korean Restaurant, we're located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in Carytown area of uh, Ann Arbor. We're open every day, Monday through Sunday, from 11 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We're open for delivery and takeout. And if you are one of those brave souls who would like to sit outside and in cold, Michigan cold, we also have patio seating. And um, our Instagram and website uh, are both Ar uh, Miss Kim Ann Arbor. So look us up. We have fun stuff going on. Chef GA Kim, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Line. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.